0: This evening we're going to begin in Romans chapter 11, so I'd like to invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 11. Mike Cosper is the pastor of a church in Louisville, Kentucky, and he recently wrote an intriguing article, I thought, on what he calls the three most disturbing words on TV three most disturbing words on TV. And if you're like me, start thinking, okay, what what are those three most disturbing words? Well, he begins his article by explaining how evil shows up uh, on a lot of these different programs and how evil they really can be and how few Christians uh, uh, watch or can justify watching some of these programs. Um, You probably heard of some of the outrageous programs that they have going on now, like Jersey Shore or Rock of Love. But he writes that those shows don't have anything to do with the three most disturbing words on TV. Um, He writes, who doesn't get teary-eyed watching the final moments of Extreme Makeover Home Edition? You know the program I'm talking about? And uh, he continues, This brings me to the three most disturbing words on television. Move that bus. Again, there's no arguing, he says, with the warm sentiments of the show. The families who have been profiled always seem to be wonderful people, he writes. I don't accuse them or the show's creator with secret evil intentions. But a disturbing thing happens in the final moments of the show. After profiling the family's suffering, after talking about hardship and perseverance, after recruiting an army of volunteers, the family is brought in front of the new home, which is hidden from view by a large touring bus. They count down and call out those three words. The three words that he says are disturbing. And the reaction, he writes, can only be described as worship. There are tears and shouting while people fall to their knees, hands raised in the air. Here it is, he writes, on bold display, the ultimate hope of most Americans. It's as though, and this is where he gets satirical, as if a phantom voice has come and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your reward. Dreamy bedrooms, big screen TVs, and wireless internet. We watch, we weep, and we hope for ourselves. It's yet another gospel alternative. This one packaged as a heartwarming vision of the way life is supposed to be. You know, sometimes what appears to be good can really be something that is turned into worship, false worship. Now, I'm not condemning the show, I don't think that's his point here. Um, in fact, he 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 argues that there are some values in the show, but but obviously you recognize his point is that people can replace a lot of or they can replace God a lot of things for God in His rightful place of worship. If you want to see worship on display? Uh, you, you can see it after those three words are are expressed. At all points, though. Uh, our our view of what goes on on television needs to be coupled with a Scripture-soaked and Gospel-informed conscience and by the input and the feedback of the community of believers. And last week we began a study on what the New Testament says a healthy church is. And I said that it's important that we find out what Christ wants us to do because it is, in fact, Christ's church. It is Christ's bride whom He... Made, whom He died for, He bought with His own blood, whom He sustains. And so if, if that is all true, and it is, then we ought to find out what He wants in, in a church. And, and that should be what determines what is what makes a healthy church and what doesn't. Of course, when it comes to a healthy church, people have different ideas of what is and is not healthy. But what people say is really not the most important thing doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things what people say the most important thing is what Christ has said and what he wants for his church so we took some time last week to look at the great commission Matthew chapter 28 to see what what it was that Christ did want and we found that our job is not done when someone comes to Christ when they make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ our job is not done what is our job as a church what is our primary job as a church. Do you remember? The ultimate goal for us, right, is to glorify God. We, we said that was the case. But, but how is that played out in our day-to-day life? Matthew 28 says the main command there is make disciples of all nations. That's our primary goal. It is not just to to make converts, make decisions, it's to make disciples. And so there's more to the church than simply spreading the word about Jesus Christ. And I say more to because it's not less than that, but there's more to it than that. We need to make disciples. We need to work to, as he says later, teach them all that I have commanded them is what Jesus tells us to do. We need to to help people grow in their understanding and their growth in godliness. And in doing so, when we are making disciples, Who are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, we are honoring to God. We are bringing glory to God. And one of the things, one of the essentials that I mentioned last week, one of the ways in which we can bring glory to God is through this uh, first one that we're going to look at tonight, and that is the worship of God, the worship of our Savior. I want to show you from Scripture why worship is essential for our church, and then I want to show you how subtly true worship can turn into false worship. And uh, so that's, that's my task this evening. Uh, I think you've already seen a little bit of that when, uh, in this opening illustration, uh, that, that true worship can turn into false worship very quickly when we replace things with God. Romans chapter 11, the very last verse of Romans chapter 11. This gives us the first reason why worship is necessary for the local church first reason why worship is necessary for a local church is that God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. Let's read in verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forevermore. Forever. Amen. Excuse me. It's part of the ultimate purpose of all things. There's a simple song. I think it was a song that I learned as a kid. I was made to praise the Lord and I will praise Him. That first part of that song is exactly correct. I was made to praise the Lord. That—that That is what we were all made to do. We were made with the capacity to worship God. This is part of who we are. And the reason that is the case is because God is worthy of all of our worship. It is the ultimate purpose for all things. In fact, if you look ahead to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, you find that the the, the angels in heaven and the people in heaven are singing, Worthy are You, O Lord, our God, for You have created all things and by Your existence they were created and, and, and do exist. It is the purpose for all things. It's what God is moving all creation towards to a place where He will be worshipped. And He will be worshipped perfectly. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, uh, familiar verses for us. Uh, God has exalted Him, Jesus Christ, and given Him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, we see the the ultimate purpose for all things that God would be glorified and the way that He is glorified is through people bowing the knee at the Son. So God is worthy of our worship. So why should we include worship in our local church? Because he is worthy. And in fact, it is the very reason that our church exists. Okay, not just our church, but but I do want to make a specific application for our church. So that's why I say our church, but it is the reason that our church exists to glorify God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul here gives us a long uh, sentence, verse three through fourteen is one sentence in the Greek, and in it he is showing the purpose for the local church. We'll begin reading in verse four. Just as he chose us in him, okay, so just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he would be that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Okay, So so far what we've seen is that there is a purpose for why He has chosen us. That's the first part of verse 5. He predestined us. Why did He do this? It is at the end of verse 5 for the, according to the kind intention of His will. And then here's the purpose. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So, we as as the church are made to praise the Lord. We're made to bring glory to Him, to to praise, verse 6, the glory of His grace. See this repeated again in verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. You see Paul repeating his point and then verse 14, who is given, that is the Holy Spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Well, we learn from these verses that all of what God has done for His church, all that Christ has done for His bride, the church, is for the praise of God's glory. God is worthy of our worship And as a church, it is the very reason that we exist. We exist for the praise of His glorious grace. And as a church, we magnify God's greatness by existing and worshiping Him in a proper way, in a way that He wants to be worshiped. And uh, let me have you turn to Philippians chapter 3 because we'll see that this worship as a church is part of who we are. Philippians next book. In the Bible, Philippians chapter 3. Notice how Paul describes the church here in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, this is who we are. We are people who worship God. This is what we do. This is why we were made. This is why we were formed as a body. This is why Jesus Christ allowed us to come into the body. It was so that we could praise God, so that we could give Him glory. Or He already has glory. We, we uh, magnify His glory, I should say. We give Him praise. So, if churches are to be worshiping God, and if that's the very purpose that we were made, then what does worship look like? What does worship look like? Well, I think if you use the if you look at the term throughout Scripture, you'll find that that it simply uh, means that we give worth to the person who deserves it. That in fact you you can almost hear that, that word within the word worship worth. That's actually where the word came from worth ship and. Uh, and so, most, most simply, it is to give them the honor that is due to them. It is—it is like uh, many people have done throughout history. They pay homage to a king or a queen. In this case, we are giving honor to the one who deserves it. And you'll find this sort of—you'll uh, you'll find this sort of action or reaction to a person who deserves worth, who deserves great honor. Isaiah chapter six. You remember when Isaiah came before the Lord, he recognized God's own worth, worth and his own worthlessness, and as a result, he he writes there or he says there, "Woe is me, for I am a man undone, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips." You see, he recognized his own worthlessness before this King that had great worth, God. Um, but, but if we were to look at how the word itself is used in the Scripture, you'll find that, that worship primarily has to do with falling down and giving reverence to God. Okay? We're going to see it used in other contexts where people fall down and give reverence to someone else. But, but let me show you, first of all, Matthew chapter 2. I'll show you a couple of ways in which this word is used. This word worship, the primary way it, was, it is used in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. And then what I'd like to do is um, just remind you about a few others. We won't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 2. In verse 11, After coming into the house, they, the the wise men, saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh it is quite a spectacular picture if you think about it, isn't it? That these grown men come to the the place where the baby is laid, uh, probably at this point a, a perhaps a toddler, but but they they fall to the ground and worship this person, this Jesus. Matthew chapter eight uh, talks about a leper who bowed down before Christ and begged to be clean. Matthew chapter nine, the synagogue official. You remember we talked about this in Mark as well, where he asks for Christ to heal his daughter, and he comes to the feet of Jesus and he bows down in worship before him, and that word is used there. Matthew chapter fifteen, the Canaanite woman did the same thing because her daughter was possessed by a demon, and she comes and bows down and worships Jesus. Matthew chapter twenty-eight, when the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, it tells us that they bowed down and worshipped. The Savior, Mark chapter six verse five, the demons who are uh, the demon-possessed men who lived by the tombs, they came when Jesus got off the boat, and the very first thing they do is bow down and worship uh, in a in a symbol of reverence to the Savior, the the one who is God and man. And then let me have you turn to Acts chapter ten. Here the word is used, the word for worship is used, but it's actually not given to God. But this will help us understand what the term means and what our worship should consist of, at least in in our hearts. The way we should respond is to um, to God in worship. Acts chapter ten, verses forty-five. I'm sorry, twenty-five and twenty-six. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. Okay, so Cornelius, being a, a Gentile, is now receiving this gospel from Peter. And so Cornelius comes and, and because of the recognition of worth for Peter, he down and bow, bows down and worships Peter. But notice 20, verse 26, but Peter raised him up saying, stand up. I too am just a man. So Peter uh, rightfully does not accept the worship that is given to him. He recognizes that or he helps Cornelius to see that, listen, I'm just a man just like you are, so the worship does not need to be coming to me. You need to direct that to God, I think, is the point. And then in Revelation, we see this over and over again. Let me have you turn in Revelation chapter 1. This is actually a different word that is used for worship, but it's a good example of what worship should look like. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. John is writing here, after having seen this vision of Jesus Christ in verses 12-16. through It's quite an amazing image that he sees. And this is how he responds in verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet like a dead man. And He placed His right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living One. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Turn over to chapter four, verse ten. I'm going to take you to several passages here in Revelation. See what worship looks like in this book. The twenty Revelation chapter four verse ten. The twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, "Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you who created all things, and because of your will." They existed and were created. And look at chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. See this word used again. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Chapter 7, verse 11. chapter 7 verse 11 and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying Amen blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever what you recognize here in all these and in many more really is that these people these angels these elders and and for living creatures, they all recognize the worth of God, and they recognize their own worthlessness before Him. See, we don't bow down and worship someone who we feel is is has lower worth than we do, lesser worth than we do. We bow down and worship someone who has greater worth than us. Let's look again at chapter eleven, verse sixteen. chapter 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give You thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. And then look at chapter 19, verse 4. This is the term worship used again as it has been. Been used throughout Revelation and much of the old or the New Testament, excuse me. Verse four and the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne, saying, "Amen, hallelujah," or in other words, praise the Lord. And look down to verse ten. Then I fell. That is John. I fell at his feet to worship him. He's talking. He's really worshiping an angel who has given him these visions. But he, the angel, said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John does this again in chapter 22. He falls down and worships the angel who had given him these visions. Chapter 22, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, "Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of God, words of this book. Excuse me, worship God." So the angels rightfully deflect the worship to God. They say, "No." Don't worship Me. I am not worthy of worship. Do you understand? I am also created like you are. I am, as He said earlier in chapter 19, I am a fellow servant of yours. And the reason I took you to all these texts is because I wanted to show you that especially in Revelation, you have these people just continually when they're before the face of God, they, they fall down and worship. They can't help but do anything else because they recognize their worthlessness before Him the point I think that, that we need to take from this is that when we see God for who He is, okay, as He's revealed to us in the Scripture, there should be a sense, there should be an emotion that comes within us. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to physically fall down and worship God. But, but, but at the very least, it should be something that triggers a desire in our heart to see God receive the honor that is due to Him. When we see God for who He is, and when we see our own worthlessness, we want to worship Him. We can't help but do anything else. So let me give you a, a let me just read for you first a, a definition that I found helpful from a man by the name of Peterson who wrote a book called Engaging with God. I like his definition, and I'm actually going to summarize it, shorten it up, and make it a little bit easier to to. Uh, to take so so you don't have to write this one down. I'm just going to read this. This is his exact definition. He says the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with Him on the terms that He proposes and in the way that He alone makes possible. So it's engaging with God on God's terms through God's means. And that's how I would uh, summarize what worship is. It is engaging with God. On God's terms, with God's means. And so what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time looking at, well, spend spend the next portion of time looking at uh, breaking this this uh, definition apart. Let me have you turn to John chapter four. And the first thing I want to see here with regard to what worship is is that we need to engage with God on God's terms. John chapter four. We need to engage with God. On God's terms. Jesus, here in John chapter 4, is speaking with the woman at the well. You know this story. Um, He is in Samaria. And when she realizes that he is a prophet, she begins to talk to him about worship. Let me read the um, uh, kind of a larger chunk of the passage, but I want you to see what Jesus is getting at and what he sees as true worship. John chapter 4, verse 15. The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw.' He said to her, "'Go, call your husband, and come here.' The woman answered and said, "'I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You have correctly said, "'I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly.' The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.' Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe Me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now it is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I think the main point of what Jesus is saying in His reply to her is repeated twice there for us in verse 23 and verse 24. There is coming a day, He says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then He repeats that again. Verse twenty four, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the first thing that we need to see with regard to engaging with God on God's terms is that we need to that we need to understand that God honoring worship is spiritual worship. We must worship God in spirit. Then we'll look at the next one and in truth. But God honoring worship is spiritual worship. Now this doesn't specifically mean that we need to have the Holy Spirit involved in our worship, although that is true. We should have spiritual worship in that sense. The Spirit should be charging us, energizing us to worship. But you'll notice from the text that our translators take spirit as a small case S. You see that there in your Bible? Turn back to chapter 3 because what you'll find is that when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, The third person of the Trinity, he uses a capital S. Notice in chapter 3, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, that is Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the, notice, Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In this case, Jesus is saying you you have to be born of both the water and the Holy Spirit. But in our text, John chapter four, and we know that because it's capitalized. In our text, your your version, your translation in front of you has "spirit" in a lower case uh, type set. So that means that Jesus is talking about something else other than the Holy Spirit. And. So what I would suggest to you is that this spirit that he's talking about, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, that this spirit refers to the quality of worship. That, that we must understand that, that we must do it in a truthful way. Okay, must worship him in, in truth. So if we take that same sort of idea, the way in which we worship, we bring it over to spirit. The quality of our worship should be spiritual in nature. So that means that that our worship should be defined by or marked by fervence in spirit. And we should not be marked by a dead or or cold or indifferent worship. Have you been to churches like that? Where they go through the rituals that they have been doing for ages and they do them without any emotion, without any thought, without any recognition of who they are worshiping. That's not what God is calling for here. He's saying that we must have fervent worship. It must come from within, it must capture our whole body. And for an example of that, I would encourage you to look up on your own time John chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, where it says that Jesus was moved in spirit. And this is at the death of Lazarus. And when he did, you remember the shortest verse of the Bible, verse 35, that what happened? What did he do when he was moved in spirit? Anybody know that verse? John eleven thirty five. He wept. Right. So so it it brought to him some sort of emotion, but it, but it included his whole person, his body, his mind, his his will, his emotions. This is an internal response that should come to external circumstances. It's what happened when Isaiah fell down. He recognized who God is. He fell down and worshipped. It's what John did at the at the uh, amazing sight of our God. In the same way, our worship should involve our whole person. So our worship should be spiritual worship, but also it should be truthful worship. It says God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Our worship should be truthful worship. Remember, we said that we ought to engage with God on His terms, on God's terms, according to His purposes, what He proposes. So we need to understand that God honoring worship is truthful worship, and we shouldn't be surprised by this. That means that our worship should be scriptural, that it comes from God. If we really want to worship a way and in a way in which God is honored, we should do it in a way that He has prescribed. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prays for His disciples and He says, Sanctify them, change them by the truth. Your word is truth. Should be scriptural worship that it is that is it is grounded in the Bible and then it should be sincere worship. We know of lots of insincere worship, people who worship for other reasons than um, uh, than what they should. And and this really leads us to the next point, and that is that not all worship is acceptable before God. Do you realize that not all worship is acceptable before God? Pastor Dorn gives uh, at least four ways in which our worship can be unacceptable. Number one, we can worship false gods. Okay, pretty obvious. Exodus chapter 20 says, You shall have no other gods before me. In the New Testament, uh, we ought to seek first the kingdom of God. We, we can't have idols. We can't set up other people. In the Old Testament, you had all these idols like Dagon and Asherah and Baal and, and Molech and all these other gods. In the New Testament, You may still have wooden idols that people are worshiping, but but the tendency for us in our day is not necessarily, at least in our culture, not to worship uh, actual objects, but rather we worship things like we talked about at the beginning. We take God off of His throne and we make something else more important than God. And this becomes for us a false god. So the first way in which our worship is unacceptable is if we worship false gods. Pretty straightforward. But also we could worship the true God in a wrong form. We can worship the true God in a wrong form. you remember what happened when Israel comes to the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses? Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. And what are the people doing down below? Aaron says, hey, you know how God brought us through the Exodus? Remember how He brought us out of Egypt? Wasn't that great? Why don't we all bring as an offering to Him your gold and, and will we'll, uh, we'll melt it down and will form for us an, uh, a calf. He didn't call it an idol, but a, a calf for us so that we can uh, worship this God who has brought us out of Egypt. And he makes it clear that he's talking about the true God. He's trying to worship the true God. He may even have the right motive. Saying, I want God to be honored. But, but yet, he, he worshiped God in the wrong form. You see, God can't be confined to something as small as what we have made. That's why we don't uh, we don't carry around little artifacts of, of God or bow down to pictures or something like that like you find in other uh, false religions. And when Aaron completes this calf, he says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. He really believes that this is the true God, but God will not accept worship that's done in the wrong form. In fact, while Moses was up there, that was the very second commandment. You shall not make any graven images. You can't confine me to some image. You can't do it because I am so much greater than that. Thirdly, our worship is unacceptable before God if we worship the true God in the wrong manner in the wrong manner. So we can worship a false god, we can worship the true God in the wrong form, or the true God in the wrong manner. Nadab and Abihu are a good example of this. In Leviticus chapter 10, they brought before God a strange fire. And they did it, I think, with good motives. They wanted to be pleasing to God. But God said, because I have not commanded it, I am going to send down fire from heaven and devour you. And that is, in fact, what He did. Because He had not commanded it. They had the right God. They had the right form. They were in the temple. They maybe even had the right motive, but they did it in the wrong manner. And then fourthly, worship of the true God with the wrong motive is not acceptable before God. Worship of the true God with the wrong motive. We've seen this several times in the prophets. Malachi chapter 1, where they bring blind or lame animals before God. And he says, I don't want your sacrifices. They're worshiping the true God. They're bringing sacrifices. God asked them to do that. It's the right manner, right form. But they're doing it with the wrong motive. See, they don't really care about what God ultimately wants. And they they don't care about their heart. And so what we should learn from this is, is that there are all sorts of things that we can try to put into our our ingredients as far as what is acceptable before God, but at the very least, we have to worship the true God. We have to to worship Him in the right form, not in an image. We have to do it in the right manner according to what He wants. And then it must be done with the right motive. So there's a lot involved in order for our worship to be acceptable before Him. Engaging with God through... uh, Engaging with God through God's, um, excuse me, through God's on God's terms. That's the first part. Engaging with God on God's terms, and then next, engaging with God through God's means. This is what we're talking about with regard to manner. The thing that we should be most concerned about when we walk away from a service is not how did I feel about that. And one of the dangers can be that we evaluate our worship based on what we feel after it's over with. So did that incite some feelings in me and you know did that song really touch me? Okay. It doesn't really matter what, how it affects us. It should affect us by the way, but but that's not the final purpose because here's what can happen is if we make that the final goal, okay, if we want to make people feel as if they've worshiped, then then now our goal has replaced the ultimate goal that we have, and that is to be pleasing to God. So now we can come to Him with a gift that He doesn't want. Okay, We may have changed, uh, or or our feelings or emotion might have been uh, inflamed in some way, but God is maybe sitting up there like with Nadab and Abihu and saying, that's nice that you feel good about your worship, but that doesn't do anything for me. I want to be worshipped according to how I told you I wanted to be worshipped and, and that's all I'll accept. So we need to do it according to His means. God's not simply offered, uh, satisfied with what we offer unless it's done according to what He wants and the way in which He wants it. So, in our worship, I think there should be at the very least these elements. And I'm just going to quickly go through them. Uh, most of them are found in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the very first church. And um, one is elements of worship, listening to the preaching of the Word, prayer, giving, the Lord's Supper, baptism. And then we find in 1 Timothy 4 that there should be reading of the Scriptures, whether before a sermon or, uh, or during a sermon, I should say, or as a part of the service as a whole. And there also should be, at the very least, singing. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that. The main thing that we must understand, and this, this is important, is that we must not add anything to our worship services that God has not prescribed. Okay, so He's given us these elements that He wants as, to be a part of our service, and we shouldn't come in and add something to it. Okay, So uh, we add some sort of, of uh, carnival game up here. Okay, we want to add that to our worship because I think we can get more people involved and maybe they'd feel better when they walk away. This is this is kind of the point of which I'm driving to, and that is that worship must be done on God's terms according to the way that He wants to be worshipped. And so in order to find out what He wants, we need to go to His Word and find out what elements are prescribed in the Scriptures. Not come up with our own uh, other ideas. We give Him what He wants because otherwise we we fall into the same category that Nadab and Abihu fell into, and that is that we add something to our worship that God never asked for. He said, listen, I didn't command you to add that to the to the worship of me. By the way, this can be as as uh, profound or as, as shocking as something like that, like a carnival game or something like that, but it also can be as subtle as uh, simply a tradition that we've done for a long time. So we just have to be careful. We have to continually evaluate. Okay, not how I feel when I get done. How how does God feel according to what He has told me? And uh, that should be the the litmus test of whether our worship is acceptable or not. Um, let me quickly just uh, mention the subtlety of false worship. It is. It's there's a very fine line between the worship that God wants and the worship that God doesn't want. So what can happen is the worship that God wants can quickly cross that line. We can stand on the edge and then move over into worship that God doesn't want. And it happens often very subtly. The, um, the example that I can think of with regard to this is, is in Judges. The people of Israel were honoring to God, I believe, during the time of Joshua. They were obeying His commands. They were um, getting rid of the Canaanites. They were purging them out of the land that God had promised. Now, let me read for you Judges chapter 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which He had done for Israel. So during the time of Joshua and the elders, as long as they were alive, what seems to have happened is that the people of Israel worshipped God. And the reason that that the writer of Judges gives is that they had seen the works of God. Many of them had had been a part of the conquest, if not all of them were a part of the conquest. They saw how God knocked down the walls of Jericho. They saw how they beat, beat the people at Ai and so on. But how long did it take into the book of Judges before that generation rejected God. In fact, uh, that generation held to God because they had seen the works of the Lord. But if it turns out that the next generation fell away. Here's Judges chapter 2, verse 10, just three verses later. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. A okay, nice way of saying that they all croaked. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the work which He had done. They didn't worship God because they didn't know God. They didn't know His works. They didn't know what He had done. And so what we learn from this is that we are never more than a generation or two from rejecting God. We are never more than a generation or two from rejecting God. Don't be surprised if your children or your grandchildren reject God because they have to see God for himself, for themselves. They need to see God's works for themselves. Don't just assume that they're going to get the fire that you have. Don't just assume that, hey, because I've seen all these great works of God, then they're going to see them. And if you're surprised by that, then, then simply read through the book of Judges and you'll find this over and over again. They constantly come back to God. They beg for His mercy and then they see His great works and then this generation dies and the next one comes up and they forget God. It happens all over the Scriptures. And the implication of that for our own church is that, that this church will not last forever. In fact, this church could go under within the next generation or two because of our forgetting of God. And if you think that's shocking, then think back, look back at your history books and find out if there is one church that still exists from the first century. There is not. And that's because we as humans, we just assume that, that our, the next generation is going to get the vision that we have. But they have to see it for themselves. That's what Judges teaches us. They have to see God for themselves. They have to see God's work afresh. And that's one of the great things that worship helps us to do. When we bring people in our church before God and they see God for who He is, we won't have to force them. It's an automatic response. That's what we've seen as we look through this term throughout the Scriptures. It's an automatic response. We simply bow down and worship this great God because He is worthy. How does this happen? How is it so quick for, for one generation to forget God? Well, I think it's because we fail to give God the proper honor that is due Him. And as churches, one of our, one of our dangers is that we replace the ultimate goal in our church. And that is to glorify God through worship, through making disciples. We, we take that goal and we set it aside for something else. Well, I want more people. Or, I want a better atmosphere. And when that now becomes the goal, the worship of God gets set aside and this whole generation, this whole group of, of people in this church may worship God. There, there may be a sense in which, which they still have a desire to serve Him, but, but over time, it will fade. Now, no Christian has ever woken up and said, you know what? One day in the future, I'd like to reject God And by the end of my life, I want to usurp His authority, defy Him, and I want my children to do the same. Nobody starts out that way. It happens gradually. It happens subtly. We don't worship God in the right way. We come to church with the wrong motives. We worship in a way that He doesn't want to be worshipped. And before we know it, we're worshipping a false God. And So we have to guard ourselves. We have to guard our families. We have to guard our church. Make sure that, that we are putting what God wants or what our church is doing under the microscope, taking careful pains to make sure that every aspect of our worship and the way that we're directing people to worship is honoring to God. Because if not, before long, we'll be worshiping a false god. I was doing a search of false gods on the internet in preparation for tonight and one um, one of the first items that came up was one by Amazon.com. Amazon is one of the largest stores in the world. You can buy just about anything there. And as I was doing the search on Google, it struck me as funny because the link read, Low Prices on False Gods at Amazon.com. Free shipping of orders over $25. And it it, it struck me as funny at first, kind of silly, but, but then I began to think about it. And I realized that a lot of the things that can be purchased on or that are purchased on Amazon can turn into false gods they can take the place of the true and living God in fact anything that we purchase purchase anything that we own anything in our lives can take the place of God even something good so Amazon's not a bad store I don't think uh by by nature inherently um But the things that are purchased there can turn into false gods, just like any of our family members could actually turn into a false god for us. If we take God out of His place and put our family member in that place and love them and honor them more than we honor God, then then we've we've made a false god for ourselves. So when you think about it, Amazon actually got it right, or Google got it right, that there were low prices on false gods. They can come from any number of areas, I'm not talking about a specific item, but we have to recognize that anyone or anything that takes the place of the true and living God has taken the place of God and therefore has become a false God. So what what should our response be to God? It is to see Him for who He is, recognize what He has done, and as a result, we should do what this word means bow down and worship God. Give Him the worth that is due to Him, the honor. And in the same way, we need to make sure that our church is worshiping in a way that is honoring to Him and then work to make sure that our children and our grandchildren and even the children that are our children in our church are seeing God for themselves and learning to serve Him in a way that would be honoring to Him. We need to let them taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we are thankful for the manual that You have given to us to help us to see what is uh, true worship. We don't have to guess. We don't have to do uh, worship You via trial and error. You have given a completed manual exactly what You wanted us to have with regard to what should be included in our worship. And we admit, Father, that we are so prone to wander. Our minds are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to wander. We can turn quickly on You as our authority and 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 primary love like the, the church in Revelation who lost its first love. It's easy to do that when there are so many things that are vying for our attention. And as a result, we get on the path that the world is on and we start to follow after those gods of which You are opposed. And Sometimes those things can even be good things. But our desire is to worship You for who You are and to see You for who You are. So I pray that You would give us a fresh understanding of who You are, of Your presence, of Your greatness, Help us to recognize and see You in the Scriptures, for the Scriptures are about You. Help us to see You in, in, uh, in the Scriptures as we meet together, not just in our own time, but, but as we come together. And may our hearts be overflowing with love for You and a desire to see You honored. We long for the day when we will be able to worship You in a perfect way, in a way that is unhindered. But until that day, we need Your grace. We need Your help to show us the way and to help us to know what is best and to weed out the desires to appeal to the people and make it our most important and vital goal to please You. We ask for Your help now in the name of our Savior who died for us and who lives for us. May we live for Him. Amen.